I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. This week, we love to watch the lead singer of The Police in a metal speedo. This is, it feels so different already. Um, <laughs> what are you talking about? This is the first episode of our first ever podcast. Yeah, first ever podcast. We have a brand new studio. Um, I've moved from the the rightest part of my couch to somewhere in the middle. Um, how about you, Peter? How have you celebrated this launch of our brand new podcast? I think that since we're kind of big leaks now, uh, I decided to get a in-home uh, tanning bed. Oh, that's... Yeah, it's really great for me. You're, you're recording the podcast from the tanning bed? Yeah, so if I start, like, big-shotting you soon, don't worry about it. That explains why you told me that this podcast needs to be no more than 30 minutes or you'll die. Uh, <laughs> that makes a lot more sense now. I still got time for our normal jawing. We're going to start with, and once again, opening segments, still here, guys. Don't worry about it. Dustin, all your favorite moments still on the show. Oh, yeah, we're keeping them all. Keeping them all. Just for you, baby. Yep. If you live in a house, you're in tight. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we, we we could make up new ones. As we found out last week, they all apply to Dustin. <laughs> uh, we just need our own new rules dash new no-no segment. Yeah. Where yeah. We, we just bring down random people. Yes. I think we, I, I think that's good. We kind of do already uh, where I just randomly find intermittent moments to uh, make fun of MRAs and uh, Gamergate people. <laughs> so we just need to codify it into one early section. I, I don't feel like those are random people i think those are people who deserve your scorn and your hate. oh yes so yes so um do you want to transition out of the fun uh, ranty part of the show into a strict rigid laugh schedule yes let's, okay, let's so, get, can, so, that, can that be what we call our segment and we love to watch let's get on the laugh schedule <laughs> we need some jaunty music yeah I'm, I'm gonna have you on a stopwatch so okay uh, pay attention so this week, I devised a game that I'd like to make a sort of recurring game, but this is the trial version, so uh, it's going to run 100% smoothly. You're it like a studio a... announcing their sequels before they pitch the movie. <laughs> You're like, wait a minute, this is going to be a franchise, yeah. and the execs are already scratching their chin. Um, so this is a multiple choice text adventure based on Frank Herbert's Dune, as well as David Lynch's Dune, and so I'm going to sort of read a little bit of interstitial text to put you into the the atmosphere. I might lay some music down, um, and then I'm going to ask you multiple choice questions, and that will determine your path, sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure or a uh, text-adventure-style game. Uh, you want to play this game with me, Aaron? Uh, well, I don't have a choice. It's part of the segments. <laughs> it's just no. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, we should, David Lynch is doing in do that All right, let's talk about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so uh this is based on uh yeah this is based on uh, the movie and the book so you should have a clear understanding of what's going on roughly if you've seen either book. so you are a member of the house andretti's and you've landed on the planet arrakis the desert planet under the control of the duke leto andretti's after the harkonnen and sardaukar uh, under the emperor's betrayal you escape out into the desert the arrakan sun beats down on you you have a bag full of survival gear, but you don't know what's in it. You see no worm sign, but 
The Harkonnen patrols this area in Thopters. What do you do? A. Run to a cave up ahead. B. Inspect the bag. C. Kill yourself. C. <laughs> uh, you kill yourself. Okay. <laughs> I hope you enjoy playing the game. <laughs> Why? If, if you're going to put that as an option so early, I expected, I don't know, maybe I get resurrected or something. You know, I, I am a Christ figure. No, no, I didn't tell you that. Um, so, so, no, I'm uh, talking about I, me, the game player. <laughs> luckily, luckily, I built in a series of checkpoints. Okay. So, assuming you didn't kill yourself. All right, let's look in the fucking bag then. Maybe for a gun to kill myself. <laughs> uh, you inspect the bag. Inside, you find five objects. Do you wish to open the first, second, third, fourth, or fifth object? So wait, they're in... The objects are in boxes that I need to open? Like I wrap presents Nope, they're just in there and you need to play the game the way that I think. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, third, the third object. The third object is water, the most precious life source on Arrakis. But it is warm and gross. You refuse to drink it. Well, why isn't that my choice? Because it's warm and gross and you refuse to drink it. I don't think you know how text adventure games work. I got kicked out of a role-playing game once, the only time I ever played. <laughs> it's 100% true. Junior high, they asked me to leave because I kept killing my party members, apparently. <laughs> it's the only time I've ever played a role-playing game. You would have been great at uh, you would have been great at improv. You would have been like uh, Michael Scott in the office, where he just uh, he just comes in the door and just starts shooting people in every single improv sketch. He he whispered to me that he has a gun. <laughs> um, okay, fine. I won't go? drink the water. Go ahead. So you, you, you the water was the third option. Uh, what are the other five options? Would you like to uh, four? Um. Four, number four is a laser gun. Inspecting the barrel, you laser gun your face off. So I did find a gun to kill myself. <laughs> there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> All right, we return to the previous checkpoint where you haven't opened the bag yet. Would you like to open the first, second, or fifth object? I'll do the second object. You find a still suit, but it is torn irrevocably. Why did I even bring this bag? <laughs> You didn't pack it. Someone packed well, it for you. That person is fired. <laughs> I'm a really good dungeon master or whatever you want to call on this. I just constantly don't want you to have fun. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, first or fifth object? Uh, the first one. It is a thumper. You plant the thumper. A fat baseline causes you to feel intense swelling emotion inside yourself. You pull out a MIDI keyboard from your pocket and start to make sick beats. However, a uh, sandworm is summoned by the thumper, and you are devoured. Right in the middle of my sick beats. <laughs> right in the middle of your sick beats. Did I? How many tracks did I lay down before it was all over? <laughs> like an album's worth or an EP? <laughs> you got maybe through like your second song, where like the complexity was going up, but like uh, it didn't have the sort of sweet simplicity of your first time tickling the ivories. All right, a answer me straight, Peter. That first song. Hit single? The first song is a hit single. Okay, great. The, the Fremen will respect you. <laughs> All right, let's open the fifth object. Uh, so returning to our previous checkpoint, you uh, you open up the fifth object, and it is a shield. You activate the shield, thus attracting the worm. You are eaten. So I feel like the bag was a trap. 
It was a series of five traps. It was a series of traps. I mean, one is just the water. Like, why yeah. wasn't there another option? <laughs> after the water. Can I go to the cave after the water situation that I didn't want to drink? Maybe blow on it for a while till it was cool? Yeah, that got too mathematically complex for me, so I just okay. decided the bag was step two. Okay. So, returning to the first checkpoint... Do you wish you've landed on Arrakis? <laughs> Do you wish to run to the cave, inspect the bag, or kill yourself? Let's go to the cave. Okay. You make it to the cave, but your heavy footprints attract a sandworm. Do you A, run into the worm's mouth yelling, I am the Kwisatz Haderach, bow before me, worm. B, open your bag. Or C, <laughs> climb deeper into the cave. I'll go deeper into the cave. <laughs> Good move. It's the only one that pushes you forward through this game. <laughs> well, I had a feeling the bag wasn't going to work, Peter. How'd you figure that out? It's a previous lifetime. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm in a world of eternal recurrence. <laughs> you make it into the cave. The worm angrily tongues the wall of the cave, then backs up to retreat. The entrance seals behind you. What do you do? Venture deeper into the caves, A, or B, sit there. I'll, I'll probably go deeper into the caves. Uh, you venture further into the cave system. You are stumbled upon by several Fremen in torn robes. They look desperate but competent. What do you do? A, open bag. B, run back the other way. C, offer your services as a concubine. D, you fight back. Or E, babble some mystical shit. I'm going to babble some mystical shit. They take you under their wing and make you their new god. Congratulations, <laughs> you are the Kwisatz Haderach. <laughs> I won! I you won Dune! <laughs> Uh, you uh, you figured out that the, the as soon as you figured out the bag was a trick, you figured out. Yeah, as I exhaustively best. opened each object that is individually wrapped, it must have been my Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> it was pain within pain. Yeah. Thank you so much, Peter. That was a lot of fun. I hope um, you had fun. I did. Yeah, th Although, again, all, all as you found out, my instinct is to ruin the game. Uh, which, again, is why I have only been invited to one game of Dungeons & Dragons when I was 13, which, segue, 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 was about the time I read the book and watched the movie of Dune for the first time. Do you uh, want to start talking about Dune? Yeah, I'd love to start talking about Dune. Walk without rhythm, it won't attract the worm. Walk without rhythm, and it won't attract the worm. Developers decided that we were doing Dune after a uh, slight mix-up where we realized that the Apple was pretty much not available anywhere and we wanted people to actually watch the movie that well, we were watching. Well, we wanted us to be able to watch the movie we yeah. were watching. Like, like <laughs> we, we could have found a copy on Amazon for a, a pretty penny, but like we wanted to actually be able to watch the movie with people. Yeah. Um, they decided on Dune, which was really great timing because I just started reading the book by happenstance. So I, I rushed through the end of the Dune book by Frank Herbert. It's a first time read. I didn't read it when I was 13 like Aaron. And I loved it. And then immediately the day after I watched the David Lynch adaptation, which I'd heard was very uh, controversial. I'd seen the movie when I was like 12, but I didn't remember anything about it except for it was very visually interesting. So the movie is... Weirdly enough, I think uh, I don't want to get too much into my the, my uh, criticisms of the movie, but it is overly slavish of the book in certain ways. So, uh, Aaron, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with uh, the Dune uh, franchise? Yeah, so I read the book. I went through a huge portion of my life where I was the the library was a block or two blocks away from my house. 
especially in elementary school and early junior high, and I would go there constantly and go through their paperbacks and basically read uh, every sci-fi book I could get my hands on, which meant a lot of terrible Star Trek The Next Generation stories, tons of those Star Wars books, and a few other, uh, everything from Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep to stuff like Dune. And Dune, very quickly, I, you know, I probably called it my favorite book for years. If I had kept up and read it a few more times, it could still be my favorite book. I, I absolutely loved it. Just obsessed with it. I think I read it two times back to back. And it was just ex- everything I wanted. A giant science fiction uh, space opera with intricate uh, characters. It was the exact type of thing that felt like it could only be told in book form. Uh, And then about seventh grade, but obviously there was a movie adaptation. I didn't know anything about David Lynch. I just knew it was a movie that was based on this book I loved. And I think my, my reaction to it at the time was just kind of a, huh, okay, well, that was a movie. And that is not the movie that I had in my head. And okay. And then I, you know, later on really got into David Lynch. He became one of my favorite filmmakers. I can still consider a few of his movies some of my favorite of all times. And I just never really went back and revisited Dune. And it wasn't even until recently. Again, I'm not surprised that the Dissolve group voted for this movie because it seems like it comes up quite a bit. And a lot of people have a very high opinion of this movie, so I was definitely looking for a reason to revisit it. I actually wanted to read the novel again, too. I recently rebought it, but have not got a chance uh, yet. And I never went on to read any of the other sequels. I think I got 50 pages into Dune Messiah right after reading Dune, and something wasn't clicking for me um, at the time, and I just never never got through it. And so, yeah, this was a chance to revisit it. I will admit that it's not like I was rushing to revisit this movie. It was one of those one of these days I got to catch up with it again. But again, it just kind of left me cold. And I will say, rewatching it this time, I thought it was much knowing Lynch more than I did at the time. I think it's I think it's very interesting to look at. You can really see the Lynchian touches. But I definitely think it has its fair share of issues. I, in no way do I think this is some sort of uh, forgotten or, or undiscovered Lynchian masterpiece. I, like I said, I just finished the Dune book as an adult for the first time, and I adored it. It's one of my favorite books I've read in years. Frank Herbert created this perfectly elaborate little universe, and I just purchased uh, Dune Messiah. And uh, yeah, I'm going to launch into that very, very soon. I'm very, very excited to see what else he mapped out because that is actually something that makes the movie suffer. How lore thick the movie is. Yeah, let's let's go through the recap because I, I yeah. want that to be one of the first things we talk about because I have some thoughts and especially now being 20 years removed from reading the book, I, I have some thoughts about uh, how, how this movie can function as a unique object apart from having read the book. So... Let's let's go through the recap. I can start with a five second recap. Kyle McLaughlin gets spice powers, rules the universe. Pretty good. Yep. Yeah, for five <laughs> seconds. I mean, yeah, it's pretty good. So yeah, uh, if you don't mind, I'll do the uh, the ninety second version. I don't mind. The House uh, Edradis is a, a noble house that serves under the uh, intergalactic empire in the year ten thousand something. Uh, so mankind has expanded out in the stars and, and grown into these empires. Emperor Padisha and his princess daughter Irulan, they rule the galaxy and they essentially. Suck 
side in a, a rivalry between the evil house Harkonnen against the noble house Adretes. And our main character and the hero of the story is Paul Adretes and his mother, Jessica. Paul has been trained from a very young age to have incredible fighting skill, incredible strategic skill, and he is essentially a prophetic figure. And he sort of discovers his own prophecy as the book goes on, as his family is transferred by the Empire to the planet of Arrakis, which is a desert planet where water is the most precious commodity for everyday people. And the most precious resource in the universe is grows there. Does spice grow? <laughs> uh, is created there. <laughs> right after the family settles on Arrakis, they are attacked by Harkonnen and the Emperor hiding as uh, Harkonnen troops, the Emperor's Sarkadar troop. They break up the house Adretis. They scatter, kill, or enslave all remaining members of the house. Paul launches into the desert with his mother, joins, and then slowly becomes the leader of of desert dwellers, the Fremen, who hate the Harkonnen and uh, are, have been oppressed by them. Paul eventually leads a Fremen army as a prophetic god-king figure in a uh, jihad to overthrow not just the Harkonnens that rule Arrakis, but the emperor for his uh, corruption and for his betrayal of the House Adretis. That was pretty good. Um, I think it was over 90 seconds, but considering, I'm sure it was. considering the first 45 minutes of this movie is all exposition, um, <laughs> I think I think condensing it even to three minutes uh, is pretty good. I'll also say before we get into that part of it that I couldn't watch this movie without thinking that the Fremen sounds like one of those names that you've forgotten and are trying to like muffle under your breath so that you hope it sounds kind of like it, like a yeah, George Fremen. The, the George Costanza, like oh yeah, it's the it's the Fremen. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's one of those things that sometimes authors are are like lazily creative. The Fremen are free men. Yeah. The, they, they have their own little sort of democratic, anarchic system that uh, doesn't serve under the Harkonnens, and they want to be free from the Harkonnens. I'm sure the yeah. weirding way looked better on paper than when you <laughs> have people say it a bunch, too. Yep. So let's just get this out of the way very quickly. So this movie got some, some pretty bad reviews. Um, including by David Lynch himself, I should say. Uh, we can talk more or less just own the movie. He, he owns the theatrical cut, but uh, other extended cuts that have been made, he's basically said that he doesn't endorse. He refuses to go back in and do an alternative cut like some directors. Some directors have gone back into movies that have sort of bombed and become cult hits because this movie is a cult movie. Like certain people friggin' love it and certain people just remember it as a bomb. He refuses to talk about this is like <laughs> yeah. Alien 3 for David Fincher. He refuses to, to discuss this movie in interviews. He has said that uh, that he should not have taken this movie, taken any movie that he didn't have final cut on. And he was un, unhappy with the end product. Which is especially interesting because his original cut did run for three hours and they made him cut it down. So the idea that like someone did piece together that, that longer extended cut is, is a little over three hours long. You think that would be kind of what his original vision was that they made him cut down? So the whole thing is just it feels like more that he has distanced himself from anything to do with this. And even if that three-hour cut does better represent his vision uh he doesn't care anymore and just and just kind of wants it gone so and Ro roger ebert hated this movie uh i think siskel did as well he gave it one out of four stars called it one of the worst movies of of 1984 uh possibly the worst movie um so, and and there was tons of reviews like that that followed uh one one of the biggest criticisms that i want to get uh out right away 
especially as we just talked about the book, is that this movie is pretty nonsensical to begin with. It's really hard to follow, which is probably why they have so much scenes of exposition. Like, they have a shit ton of exposition in this movie, and it's still very difficult to follow. And they basically (laughs) said that, if you haven't read this book, this movie is complete nonsense to you. That it is impossible to follow. What do you... I, yeah, I don't know if this movie... This movie... Uh, it's so weird because I watched the later Harry Potter movies and they are fan-only movies where I find some enjoyment to them, but there's a lot of plotting details that are just left completely out of the edit or were never shot, and that is very confusing. This movie, the whole thing feels like a fans-only proposition where it's like, if you are not a fan of the book already, if you haven't read the book already, you're not going to get it. However, the movie completely hobbles itself by trying to explain lore as fast as possible to new people (laughs) to the point where... I didn't find myself enjoying the movie until the last third, basically, once it it stopped being about setup and it started being about... I don't know. I think uh, there's a lot of exposition in the last third, too. Um, yeah. One, one, of my favorite, one of my favorite moments to kind of describe this, I wrote it down. So about an hour into the movies where Paul and his mom crash land and he's kind of rolling around on the sand and he says... He, he kind of says to himself while they're rolling around... Is there a connection between the spice and the worms? And I and I, I remember thinking, watching it now, like, that's got to be incredibly frustrating for an audience who probably doesn't understand what the fuck the worms are or what the fuck the spice is at this moment. And here you have a character on screen going, is there a connection between the two? It's yeah. like, well, I don't even know what these – like, I knew what they were from, again, reading the book 20 years ago – but watching the movie and expecting to remember, like, I, I don't even think they clearly articulate what Spice does. Yeah, I, they, I, that's my last note. Because the entire climax of the movie, the entire power pivot where Paul asserts his authority over everybody, over the Emperor, uh, he's already owns the Fremen, uh, he, he has his final move against the Harkonnens, basically ending the house, he, and the, uh, the Spacing Guild, which I didn't mention, the Spacing Guild uh, controls all space travel. The weird change between the movie and the book. In the movie, the book is about how uh, forces leverage one another with checks and balances. In the movie, the Spacing Guild just kind of controls the Emperor with force. Like they basically say that they're going to leave, they're going to torture him till he dies if he doesn't do what they say. Yeah. But anyways, so. The my last note is that the movie doesn't explain what Spice does and why it's important to the Spacing Guild. And and, and it's funny because like it's important to the Spacing Guild because they're addicted to it. The movie doesn't really clarify the Spice addiction at all. And I feel like that's something that like movies are very good at telling addiction stories and uh, stories about when people need one thing and they can't live without one thing. Yeah, and it also but it also powers their space travel, which I don't think it says in the movie. Yeah, I don't I don't yeah, it, 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 that's something I think also from later books cuz I didn't understand that as far as the first book is concerned. I'm pretty sure it mentions that yeah, that it powers their ability to travel through the stars. Yeah, see, I'm not like yeah, exactly. I'm not a lore expert cuz I've even read the second book and I've already read the first book once. But I'd read the book fresh enough that the changes both uh, annoyed me 
and I understood the changes. Well, so, I, that's what's so frustrating about the the constant exposition dumping. It feels like they're explaining all this stuff, and they, they really are in very clunky dialogue. They're not explaining the things that we need to make that exposition make sense. Like, one of the biggest priorities of this movie should have been tell us what the fuck spice is and they don't do it yeah so i'm gonna say right off the bat because this this is something that frustrates people uh i love the book i love david lynch i'm not a huge fan of the movie but i find it immensely interesting and i want to talk about it and one of my primary theories of adaptation i think aaron more or less shares this is that adaptive works have to stand on their own Mm -hmm. and they can stand on their own and even if they deviate from the source material in kind of crazy ways if it works as a movie it should be left um free from criticism just because something was changed from the book doesn't mean that it hurt the movie. So I'm going to kind of criticize changes from the book, but I'm, I'm going to try and be fair and say, this is a change from the book that I think would have been a tremendously good thing to be in the movie. Yeah. So I'm going to try and be fair on that grounds, not just like, oh, well, this is different from the movie, from the book, which is like one of the dumbest ways you can criticize an adaptation is just sheer differences. Yeah. And, that and, shit. and for all practical purposes, I basically I mean, t- we're talking 20 years. Like I said, I haven't read the book in any way that I'm, I remember anything besides like I don't remember passages. I don't remember specific plot details. Like I looked up a recap as a reminder Um, I agree that adaptation does not need to be close to a book to work, but it does need to make sense on its own. And this movie was, even having read the book 20 years ago, trying to follow what's going on in the plot is kind of impossible without some other base knowledge. Like, I like a lot of this movie, but that's the part of the movie that really fails. And I'm not surprised that it did not catch on, did not make its budget back because... You know, one thing that this movie doesn't have that most of these um, impenetrable impenetrable science fiction operatic stories in a different universe do have is a point of view character. And this movie is like antagonistically not giving you that. Um, And it tries to have a bunch of people explain stuff, including an opening scene where instead of the crawl giving you the history... It's just Virginia Madsen talking at you for a little bit and randomly disappearing and just telling you the story. She even says at one point that she forgot something and comes back to tell us more, which feels like they should have just maybe reshot that part if she <laughs> forgot something. <laughs> but that that's kind of the sense of how, how confusing this is going to be because even our uh, omniscient narrator who disappears for most of this movie comes back and is like, oh, shit, hold on one sec. You're also going to need to know this uh, because there is just so much to know. And that's where I think it fails. How I think it succeeds, and this this really works well for, you know, this is going to be our only episode of We Love to Watch probably that won't relate to a theme. Our July theme is Alien Sequels. And I think this works for that because the, the leader of the guild, uh, I believe, is the baby from Eraserhead all grown up. So while I think this does work <laughs> well as a is a Eraserhead sequel. <laughs> and and, uh, and the joke that uh, that's the joking version. But I do think this succeeds as, hey, what if David Lynch made a sci fi movie? <laughs> I don't even know if it succeeds totally at that. I would so, agree. It doesn't. I, I think that's 
what it does best. <laughs> I don't think it because I didn't feel a whole lot of David Lynch trademarks. I think that there are parts of the book that are dreamlike and are sort of supposed to be uh, Paul's visions of the future because the spice grants access to prophetic visions if you have that sort of magic in you as well. The, the Ben Gazeret in the movie they pronounce the, they pronounce the name differently. I'm just going to pronounce it the Ben Gazer. If I mispronounce things, it's because I'm pronouncing it the way that I pronounced when I read the book. Don't worry, and that's that's one of the big I, carryovers from listen to our podcast. We're going to pronounce things correctly sometimes. Yeah, I'm, and it's not even about that. I just think my headcanon version of how to pronounce things, these fake words, just sounds better a lot of times. Yeah, well, they're uh, fake words. Yeah. Pronounce it yeah. how you want. <laughs> I think Ben Gazeret sounds better than Benny Jezeret. <laughs> I agree. I, uh, so, anyways, so the yeah, if you're a uh, Ben Gazeret, you have sort of a you can you might have access to the future if you're one of these reverend mothers and yeah. So there's these sort of dreamlike sequences where Paul can see visions of the future and such, and uh, that's something that I think Lynch is really terrific at plumbing at this sort of surrealness of, of dreams and how to represent dreams visually without just like putting a gauzy filter on the camera or using soap opera film stock and it really uh bums me out how little there is in terms of dreamscapes and uh weird conversations that act on a sort of dream logic there's because so much of it is just attempting to be transactional dialogue just we need to establish this point the movie is efficient to a fault (laughs) like it'll it like every scene communicates a hundred ideas and they're just slamming into you the 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 opening monologue is i think my least favorite opening monologue in a movie ever right next to Zardoz because I think it actually makes the lore confusing to people that somewhat understand the lore. Well, they don't they don't seem to know what to I mentioned this earlier where they never tell you what spice is. They seem to know they need to tell the audience a bunch of stuff. They don't seem to know what they need to tell the audience. That's like the but the opening opening voice and I have a problem with voiceover. I've gone over on the, uh, well, this, this movie is all voiceover. Almost no one fifty percent of the time if someone's saying dialogue, they're not opening their mouth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the opening dialogue, I think, is my least favorite um, voiceover. Yeah, next right next to Zardoz. I just finished reading the book the day before I watched the movie. And she was going through the plotting, and I was starting to feel myself get lost. <laughs> I know this story. Why are you explaining? It, it's like they ran um, Wikipedia through Babblefish, like into Korean and then back to English. And then they had somebody try and fix it up, but not fix sentence structure. It's just throwing a hundred ideas at you at once. I, I, I read an IMDb thing that said, um, apparently... I read a, a bit of trivia that said that apparently when they were premiering this movie or they were showing this movie to certain audiences, they would hand out a, a, a little pr- a prep book, a little handbook to teach you the different terms of of the world and, and all that. And it goes against my number one belief about movies that you shouldn't have to do homework yeah. to enjoy a movie. That's also <laughs> your number one belief about school. Yeah, you shouldn't have to do homework. No rules, man. Yeah. I'm the, I'm the Rock and roll high school. <laughs> it, it, it kills me whenever a movie doesn't make sense unless you've read something else. Yeah. It and makes I, it a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. And I think when I said, when, when I say that I think this works as, you're, you're right that the Lynchian moments are few and far between. It doesn't, 
it's it's trying to be too conventional and the moments where he does get really weird um are are some of the best parts of this movie so to clarify my point a little bit i think how this movie succeeds is that this this feels like the perfect movie to like throw on tvs in the back of a bar or at the background <laughs> at a bar because again this this follows that 80s sci-fi trend this had a pretty big budget you know the miniature work the design the special effects like if you were to watch this with the sound off and not feel a need to understand what's going on and just kind of soak in the weirdness of it all I think it would work actually better. I think attempting to understand this movie with the information that the movie gives you is a waste of time. And it's almost better to watch this. This this would be better Fantasia style with an orchestral score over the whole thing. And you're just watching these images because you're going to get about as much out of it. And I think that's most of my positives about the movie has to do with that. I don't think there's any good performances. I think there's actually a lot of good actors giving some really terrible performances. Uh, If someone should have turned Patrick Stewart down a couple notches, he's just (laughs) yelling everything in a way that's not like good acting yelling, but just like, um, you know, I, I struggle with a hearing disorder and don't know how to modulate my voice. Um, (laughs) So I think I think that's how it succeeds. So and before we get into that stuff though, and I think and and where you said that you don't want to do the thing where you're saying that I wish they would have done this in the book, I'm gonna do something that I don't usually like doing, which is kind of uh, postulate why this movie why why a lot of people recently uh, or in the last ten years have 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 found this to be a a like a Lynchian masterpiece or this forgotten masterpiece or it like and and not just like this is interesting and worth watching but really like this is a masterwork and I'm going to again I don't like to say this is why people are thinking that but this is my theory of why it works is because it is so impenetrable and there is a like a, a certain people that when they see something that doesn't make sense to them that feels like they're uncovering some sort of secret club or something and I, I sometimes feel that way too but that's the only thing that I can see for for how this movie like because I think I think you could say that this movie oh it's difficult and I don't think it's difficult I just think it's it's not good at telling its story but I think that could be easily mistaken for something more sophisticated and difficult than it actually is like you know this this feels this feels right for people just didn't get it because they weren't on its wavelength and i don't know if that's the case maybe that's not what people think or why this has developed a growing reputation the last 10 years but that's that's my theory I don't really have a great theory on why this movie has. I get why it becomes it became, would become a cult movie. I don't get why this movie has been um, legitimized as some sort of lost masterpiece because I think there's yeah there's a lot of interesting elements about it and like like we've talked about on previous episodes we don't think the movies have to be great or even good to be worth talking about. They just have to be interesting and this movie is full of interesting things. Yep. Yeah, it's not a masterpiece. It doesn't even gel with itself. Mm-hmm. It's very. It moves very fast. I'll, I'll get it to that. But it's very poorly edited, like this. And I think a lot of it is just like 
people miss David Lynch making movies. And they, they found one they hadn't seen. Yeah, and he's had such a strange, fun career where he's made movies that people consider masterpieces within the past decade. And he and people love, like, his cinematic orphans, like, uh, is it Straight Story? Is that the PG-rated yeah. release movie? Yeah, G- G-rated. G-rated. The Straight Story and Wild at Heart are two movies that uh, I loved yep. that I didn't even realize until recently a lot of people hate. Lynch has that sort of effect on people where his films are so uniquely crafted and they have such like a loud voice that I think if you like that voice, you have a hard time uh, not being forgiving of the weirdness. But I don't feel his voice in this in any way. So Yeah, I think I, the, the two movies that he's done that I would say are just interesting slash good and not very good or great are this and um inland empire and i think they have opposite problems i think in this movie you have potentially too much studio interference not letting lynch do his thing and then inland empire i think the problem is is that you have no studio interference and lynch doing too much of his thing like at both extremes i think you lose something that makes lynch lynch Um, And I I think that both of those are interesting, and I would recommend both those movies to anyone, especially if someone who loves uh, Lynch as much as I do. But I think that that's why they don't rise to the level of, like, masterpiece or near masterpiece as the rest of his movies. And I I love Inland Empire, uh, at least the last time I saw it. But I agree that it is a movie that is is a a little... (laughs) This is going to sound horrible. A little too much freedom. I feel like what he should have done was taken certain sections of the movie, and I don't want to name them. I love the weird mouse sitcom section. Like, I can't decide which ones need to go and which need to stay, but I feel like certain ideas from the movie should have just been made into short stories for his short story collections, because he loves making these weird short films that just uh, have one potent one or two really potent ideas and uh well yeah, and he even inland put em- one of his short films into inland empire rabbits oh, right oh is that what it is i was i was thinking i thought it was uh mice i could i could be i could be incorrect but yeah but it it feels like the sort of thing basically where it, it, it should have like a couple ideas stripped out and made it into their own features because it just feels overstuffed this movie feels overstuffed in things that Lynch usually kind of runs away from, which is trying plotting. to make narrative sense. Yep. Yeah, and and the movie by trying by doubling down on trying to make narrative sense, it actually makes less sense. This movie should have stripped out ideas from the book, and in some ways, it feels like a loving adaptation, which Lynch would never say now that it was a loving adaptation. Well, you know that he, you know that he hadn't even read the book or, and knew nothing about it when he signed on for this. I didn't so, know that because the. It feels like a loving adaptation because the worst parts of loving adaptations are when they just can't not include this weird deep character detail that doesn't work on film. It sounds really cynical to say this, but the movie should have erred on the side of being too commercial. They should have stripped out shit that just doesn't work on film. <laughs> and made this a story of a 
a prophet that fought his way to the top of the ranks of a, of, a, of this, this guerrilla army and then led them to revenge. But the weird thing about the movie is that the Duke Leto isn't killed until an hour and 15 minutes into the movie, like halfway through the movie. And it should have happened like 30 minutes in. So we knew what the revenge was about. And then given those 30 minutes to actually developing what, how Paul rose through the ranks of yeah, they, Fremen. They yada yada the entire rebellion. There's just all of a sudden the Virginia Madsen's opening narrator who's a princess or something. She's Princess Ariolon. I don't. I, I didn't come up with a pronunciation because she's not super important to the first book. Uh, she's the, emperor, the emperor's daughter, and uh, the emperor is basically setting her up to be his heir. And uh, uh, at the end of the book, as part of his, his subjugating the emperor, basically forces her to marry him so that he is now in line to become the emperor when... Uh, Padisha dies. Yeah, so none it's of that all not, shit that's not yeah, in the movie. Not, that none of that's in the movie <laughs> except that Virginia Madsen uh, talks at you for the first minute uh, in that in that terrible narration that we talked about, and then after he meets the um, the Fremen and they kind of talk about their plan, she goes, two years has passed, and uh, Paul's sister is growing up quicker than anyone expected, and they're beating the rebellion. Like, and then all of a sudden, it's at the end of the movie. Um, so it really is kind of a yada yada over, you know, a good chunk of the story that you think you'd be there to see, which is him becoming the leader of this people and leading a rebellion against the uh, empire that he had previously <laughs> been a big part of. And it's just like and again, yeah, it, it really is like when the straight just characters telling us what's going on in this world stopped was was 45 minutes into this movie and then Leto dies or is it Leto? I just said Leto like Jared Leto. Okay. Uh let it's probably Leto, but I say Leto. Uh let yeah, Leto dies then an hour and 15 minutes in and then it's like full on end of the movie climax at um an hour and 50 minutes or something like that. Like and they just kind of skip over that. I'd like to say that, well, maybe that would get fixed in some proverbial director's cut of David Lynch. But he's basically said that that's not the case, that this, for all practical purposes, this is his director's cut. So, if, again, talking about what's on screen here, yeah, the pacing is just is just completely bizarre. And then, yeah, there's no marriage at the end. Instead, um, you know, Paul makes it rain and they watch the rains down in Abraxas. I was going to say, I was going to say, when I saw Toto did the soundtrack, I was surprised that the song, the movie didn't end with uh, the rains down in Arrakis. I'm I'm pretty sure that's where they got the idea. They're like, guys, we just have to change a few letters of the last word and we got a hit song. Um, I I don't know where Toto's Africa came up, but like Toto is also completely not present on this soundtrack. There's feels like there's almost no soundtrack. And then when. Paul gets on the worm for the first time, all of a sudden some guitars kick in. You're like, where, where have they been keeping those guitars the whole movie? Yeah, I don't think the soundtrack is is offensive at any point. It's just sort of when I saw Toto came up and I was like, oh no, is this going to be all like sappy and sad and cheesy and not like fun 80s cheesy? Uh, and then no, there's no power ballads. There's no like a really great Highlander uh, Queen style uh, like who wants to live forever style stuff, which I think would have made the movie better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm gonna watch. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna watch this movie next time with the volume turned off, and I'm just gonna play Toto's greatest hits 
in the background. I'm going to see what works better. And uh, yeah, and so jumping back a little bit by ha- giving Paul's rise through the Fremen ranks, making it so and so sort of smooth and lubricated, they completely give short rift to Fremen culture. They give short rift to um, how how uh, strong Paul is, how how good of a uh, a people person he is that he can he can look into people's souls and find give them maybe not what they want but what they need. It, it they cut out opportunities to make Paul a more interesting character. Yes, I'm bummed that there's not the fight between uh, Paul and the Fremen warrior that doesn't want to take. Uh, him and uh, Jessica into the into the the siege. I'm bummed that fight's not in there. Not just because there's not one more fight in the movie, but because <laughs> it establishes so much about Fremen culture and makes the Fremen so interesting. Instead, in this, it's just like people that wear still suits and they have a sense of honor, and then they immediately love Paul. Like it's not. It's, well, and that that would have been not better. interesting. No, and and that fight scene would have been better than. Uh, the naming scene, which is of all the stilted, terrible line deliveries in this movie, that like, okay, your name's that's gonna be your secret name now. Uh, what's another name? How about this? Great, that's your new name. Let's go. It's just like I'm sure I don't remember. I'm sure that had some sort of meaning in the book that was important, but this is just like, oh my gosh, it's like someone asking you if you want paper or plastic for a couple minutes, <laughs> and there's a crowd around. And it's just super awkward. It's like, hey, guys, we got a line here. Like, can you decide what you want to be? Uh, it's 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 pretty bad. Yeah. And, and uh, one thing that is really interesting about the character of Paul is that one of his greatest strengths and one of the most compelling things about Paul and Jessica specifically is uh, Paul was trained in this Ben Gazeret way of self-calming. He is an act out of anger. He doesn't act out of rashness. And in the movie, they still have that as part of Paul's character, his sort of core inner strength. But on film, when someone doesn't express emotion and stays calm during a scene, uh, it's known as flat acting. (laughs) It's bad. And, and Kyle McLaughlin gives a really bad performance. He didn't have anything to work with, dude. Well, everyone gives a bad. Like, I don't think there's there's nothing I would go to in this movie. There's some competent or serviceable performances, but there's nothing that, again, there's a list of great, uh, great actors and great character actors in this movie. And it feels like every single one of them is giving some version of a complete garbage performance. Um, I disagree on one Bra- Brad Dorif. Yeah, I disagree on two people. I will give you plenty of time to talk shit about Brad Dorif, despite the fact that I love Brad Dorif. I love Brad Dorif. I don't know what he's trying to do in this movie. Future. Uh, so first off, if we're going to talk about performances. We have to talk about it. This is sort of a uh, Voltron of previous actors on this podcast. So Patrick Stewart was in Life Force. Virginia Madsen was in Candyman. Max von Sydow was in um, Flash Gordon was in flash gordon so we've and then also hold on uh, can we pause there the other the other commonality this has with flash gordon that i wrote down was was that apparently the 80s really liked uh any tests that involved sticking your hand into things um, <laughs> and see what happens because yeah that's tr- that's true flash that's gordon tr- had the tree hole where people like that was how you uh graduated to be a man and this is how uh paul 
graduates to be like a better psychic uh but he has to stick his hand in a box for a little bit jumping back a little bit brad dorif will be on Al- in alien resurrection yeah. so uh we, this movie is sort of a voltron of of uh I think you're right. Uh, Patrick Stewart is really flat and awful. He has a a, a meme of one of his lines in it because it's a line that I thought in the book was kind of funny, but in the movie is super flat. And it's a feel. What is it? Feelings are for uh, cattle and lovemaking or something. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, every line he says though is just "I'm yelling at you." Yeah, he's like, "This is my important Shakespeare voice," and you're like. But we know you're a great actor, Patrick Stewart. I saw Green Room. We saw Starship Starship Enterprise. Hey, we I saw s- Life Force. Yeah, I, I've seen you do, like, Shakespeare adaptations. Like, we know what you... I saw you do Life Force. Yeah. Um, but I will say there are two performances in the movie that I really love. They like, I think they lit up the screen. You're going to say and, you're gonna say the, the other guy from Twin Peaks that I'm forgetting his name. No, not him. He's okay, though. Okay. Um, I'm going to say Max von Sydow. I think he's tremendous and he's really well cast as Liat Keynes. He's really good in the movie. And when he got murdered so quickly, I was pretty bummed out because he cast such an amazing actor in such a small role. It reminded me of in Force Awakens when he, uh, spoilers for Force Awakens. Spoilers for the first five minutes of Force Awakens. Yeah, he gets murdered in the first five minutes of Force Awakens. <laughs> and I remember being like, you guys got Max von Sydow in this movie and you murdered him. But now, I, looking back, like he's got to be like in his 90s now. He might have just been too tired to do a whole movie. <laughs> um, but it, hey, if Harrison also- Ford can do a whole movie. Uh, <laughs> Max von Sydow was fine. Like he's always good. I don't think he was aggressively awful like a lot of people in this movie that are normally much better actors. But it's not like I saw his performance and was like, this is amazing. Like I saw it and was like, you are slightly more competent than everyone else in this movie. <laughs> There's just that small scene with the, th- the Thopter scene where they're all riding together and they rescue the spice workers. And Max von Sydow, I thought, was charming and re- but yet reserved in that scene. I really, really liked him. And then he also has a really bad voiceover where he basically smiles at um, Duke Leto. <laughs> and he's like, I like this guy. And you're like, we this can tell. This kid's all you're... right. <laughs> this kid's all right. You can even keep my sp- my skateboard. Um, it felt like a little MacGruber thing. Like, I'm starting to like this guy. <laughs> and I also, I think Sting is amazing in this movie. I think I mean, Sting. But he's barely in it. I'll tell you what, he looks good in a, in a Speedo. He's amazing. He has amazing physicality. And when he comes back into the movie, you're not like, fuck a fight. You're like, oh, I want to see Paul take on this cocky asshole. And he is so- a lot of the reason that I like Sting is he doesn't seem uncomfortable in the role. Yeah. Like, I think that a lot of people seem sort of uncomfortable in the movie. Jurgen Prochnow looks visibly uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> every moment that he's on screen. Like, his death looks like a mercy killing. And... Sting struts out like he uses his rock star skills to come out and just like uh, he's sexy. He he knows he looks good in the speedo, but he's also like when he's sort of playing with the knife during the fight scene, you're like, oh, Sting actually probably practiced that move in front of a mirror. And he's got that really creepy, cocky, rich kid smile that I feel like Sting actually was the only person in this movie that inhabited an interesting character that like if this movie had been successful and also had been good that 
that would have been a character people would remember not like to boba fett levels but some people would have remembered i mean i agree with you that he's great in this movie for what he needs to be which is um visually interesting and impressive and you know his 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 he's able to embody a attitude without needing to say that many lines and again i think he's one of the best parts of this movie because a he doesn't say that many lines which and and that's that's not a knock on sting the actor that's a knock on the dialogue in this movie so just (laughs) by just by not having to speak much of the dialogue he's able to kind of come out ahead but i think his part especially works just as well again if you turn the sound off in this movie and very well so i i agree with you that he you know he fits the aesthetic perfectly all of his body language and his facial expressions and anything else you want to say uh works great but so from that sense of the performance i agree with you he towers above a lot of people in this movie but maybe i'm selling him short because a lot of acting is not just using your words but he he definitely is one of the best parts of this movie from a performance standpoint but i think part of the reason is because his performance requires mostly visual related cues which again this movie i think excels at his physicality in the role really really sold me that was watching sting on screen was one of the few times during the movie when i was like oh this could have worked this really could have worked as long as we're talking about sting there's kind of a bigger part of this movie that i want to talk about and something that i definitely didn't get when i was 13 and this is actually a, qu- a legitimate question i have because i don't remember even if i would have noticed this in the book um but then when i was reading some reviews and reactions to this movie uh there there were a few scenes early on that i'm like is this movie terribly homophobic or maybe he's just killing that guy i don't remember what's going on here and then when i was reading some of the reactions uh, of this movie there were more than a few people that were like, this is one of the most homophobic movies I've ever seen, that the villains, the House Harkonnen, are these kind of gross, disgusting, boy-hungry race, or at least at least the Baron is, if not all of them, that are like fucking boys to death. And someone, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, well, I can put this in the show notes, but someone wrote about it um, much later and kind of said that this was also kind of a reference to the AIDS situation where you kind of had this depiction of evil homosexuality on screen that's like covered in sores and is like this gross disgusting monster so again i had never put that stuff together 20 years ago so i apologize if i'm articulating someone else's thoughts on that part of it uh incorrectly and we can link to the article in the show notes but it definitely watching it again uh was like this is uncomfortable and something seems gross here and reading some reactions of people that have thought about this movie more than I have in the last 20 years seem to kind of confirm that there's some kind of gross stuff here. So I, I want to address that in a couple fronts. One, in the book, he is a pedophile-child murderer, but it wasn't that gross in the book because he's a straight villain. He's this decadent, disgusting man who uses these suspensers, which in the movie just look ridiculous because they just make him fly like he's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But they don't have the open sores, I believe, is just from the movie. So on the book front, it was just a sign of their decadence that he's just like this disgusting... Like space Caligula. Yeah, which like everybody kind of hates pedophiles. So when I read the book, I was like, (laughs) well, yeah, I mean... He's a disgusting person. Like, there's a really great scene in the book where uh, uh, Fade Rotha, uh, played by Sting in the movie, tries to assassinate his uh, his uncle, 
with a, a one of his boy concubines and basically he's like bringing these boys in uh the, the duke vladimir harkonnen is bringing these boys in and then uh yeah essentially raping them murdering them which in the book i'm like he's a bad guy i don't really i didn't really see it pedophiles exist i don't know obviously it's a much more complicated discussion now but the book is very old but in the movie i had problems with how it was depicted in a couple ways i didn't catch the sore thing because i didn't associate maybe i'm just showing my ignorance i didn't associate that with uh aids no i thought it was more of a syphilis thing i didn't either does aids uh, again i open? just well it it does in the sense that aids is just an immune disorder that um allows for you know your body breaking down because it can't fight any infections or sores or anything else so um yeah i mean it can be a side effect but, but yeah i, I I didn't catch that because I just didn't know the signs. Uh, I didn't like how the in the movie I particularly didn't like how the uh, pedophile decadent murderer thing was handled. There's a lot of ways they could have handled that much more smartly. But yeah, there's essentially like a weird pseudo rape scene in the book. In which, by the way, Giddy Prime which is the Harkonnen planet, is maybe the ugliest set I've ever seen in a movie. It's just those neon green panels. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's the ugliest thing ever. And it has those, like, flowers painted gold. It looks like the set was put together for, like, 15 bucks. But that scene uh, unfolds in a way where this guy's brought in you're like oh no he's gonna do this thing and they could have just done like a cutaway or something but instead they make him into this like frothing laughing villain and he well and after... they dump they dump oil um yeah, they, dump oil they, they dump oil on his head and then he kind of covers himself in blood to the point that like i honestly again it's been a while i was like are they implying that he is vampiric because it's pretty early in the movie and I was kind of forgetting what some of the stuff was and I mean maybe this is like my old grandparents were like I don't I'm, I'm missing what's in front of my face because thinking about it like the the boy comes in and he's kind of cowering and like people are like licking their lips but obviously it's still a PG-13 movie uh, space opera so they're cutting away and then all of a sudden he's covered in blood very quickly after the Baron is so you know, for a second, I'm like, well, maybe it's not that. Maybe it's something that he needs blood to survive because his body's falling apart that I forgot about. But then there were a couple other scenes later on. It's like, oh, no, my my first instincts that this was kind of gross um, were correct. And I think, you know, it's also and again, the, the, the open source and the connection to the to AIDS was not something that I thought of even today. It was doing some research on the movie. But it is true that in the context of 1984, where it was much easier to go, hey, let's make the audience turn against these people by making them gay. And maybe that wasn't their plan, but it, it feels a little bit when you look at it through the prism of its time that some of the decisions they made are even grosser than they are today. And they kind of cut the difference between the book because the sacrifice that the the Harkonnens bring for Vladimir, um, which, by the way, I think whoever's performing that role is doing a terrible job the, the laugh and the yelling is so over the top to a painful degree like it hurts to watch the performance and yeah. uh they they kind of cut the difference so he fits the, right in with the rest of the cast yeah yeah but in the book his victims are kind of like teenagers or young 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 adolescents this wouldn't have worked in a you know big space opera so instead, they decided to have him sort of sex murder somebody that might be a like an eighteen year old 
And it's like kind of looks like he's 30 like everyone did in 1984. <laughs> yeah, you were like uh, them cutting the difference made it more offensive because it yep. was it was no longer a pedophile pedophilia thing, it was a gay thing. Yep. And then the fact that they're equating like, hey, everyone pedophilia everyone's grossed out with but we can't show that in a pg-13 movie what's something that we could show that will equally disgust the audience that's kind of what it feels like and they didn't need that what they could nope. have done was just shown what they i mean like there's even the scene where uh raban the the guy that takes over arrakis as uh duke after uh oh his, his nephew dead. yeah his nephew um he like crushes a some sort of space bug and then drinks the juice is like a, a thing like yeah, it's kind of a cheesy little image, but that communicated the exact same idea within that same scene. These people get off on cruelty, and they could have had, like, shown the gladiator games that are, like, a big part of one chapter of the book. There's a chapter all about these gladiator games that the Harkonnens love. They could have shown that, and then they could have gotten another action scene in. But Or, kind of... or have him dump himself with oil and stab that guy. And just, yeah. like, there were ways to do it without... Like the cutting away to imply that that something that something happens does make it a million times worse. And again, they could have showed their hedonistic murdering tendencies, torturing animals. Like there was a million ways to do it without going towards rape and adding to the homophobia. It was pretty obvious, and that was a big part that was like, ah, damn it, this is this is the problem with going back to any of these movies. There's there's gonna be, you know, every once in a while you get one of these movies. It's like, god damn it, nineteen eighty four. Get your shit together. <laughs> I know. And that's the other thing is like we're kind of the show is almost specializing at like mid 80s movies. And that was when they were fully comfortable having rape scenes in movies. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, we need these guys to be villains. Make them gay. Like <laughs> it's that type of level of and 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 society as a whole was like, yeah, no, totally. We get that. We talked about that a little in Life Force where it uh, there's that scene where they like all these terrible things are happening. And then uh, two guys are about to kiss and everyone's like, whoa. Now everything's gone way too far, which <laughs> yeah. which actually seems like you almost have to remember what it's like for the homophobia to even register just because it feels so innocuous now. Because, of course, you wouldn't make a movie where two people who have just let all these terrible things happen and people being possessed and spewing space vomit would would like their 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 line that they just crossed was two guys about to kiss because that's just so foreign to us now, which, again, that's good. But but uh, there's there there can sometimes be those moments that make they make some of these these movies a little like, yeah, God damn it, guys. Yeah. So can I kind of pivot into? Yeah, let's absolutely about, pivot. In summary, the movie uh, very well might be homophobic, if not on purpose, then accidentally. Definitely. So I kind of want to pivot away and focus more on there's a sort of strange theme running through the movie where David Lynch isn't. I don't think David Lynch is a very good action stylist. He's shot a few Whoa. good action scenes in his life. Like there's a great bank robbery in Wild at Heart and that, that shootout at the end of Blue Velvet is pretty great. But like David Lynch doesn't seem to be all that interested in the sort of mechanics of people fighting, which isn't a bad thing. But uh, in this movie, it hurts it in certain scenes. How, how did you feel about like the fighting in this movie? One thing I was actually really impressed by was so at the the end battle where all of the Fremen are charging the main base, the main town, and trying to take over, like it it feels appropriately epic. It feels like there's hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people 
running through the sand. It looks very realistic. It doesn't look fake or have any of those weird green screen uh, things. And I think those types of battle scenes work and the scale is correct. And it's kind of amazing. Lynch, for the most part, operated such a small scale that there's moments like that that make you think, man, I would have liked to see more bigger scale Lynchian moments. And then there's scenes of them riding the sandworm, which feels like both them on top of it and the sandworm moving through the sand that feels like the sandworm is moving, like everyone's scared that it's rushing towards them and it's doing its thing. And it, its sense of place doesn't make sense. Its sense of speed doesn't make any sense. And the people on top aren't... It doesn't work. And there's a lot of sandworm moments that I think do work, um, but them in action rushing towards the building doesn't. So I feel like it's split. I think there's some moments action-wise that he handles better than I would have expected. Uh, and there's some moments that are that he handles worse than I would have expected. I feel like a lot of this movie is either uh, exceeding or completely not meeting my expectations of what <laughs> I expected. Like, there's almost no okay moments. There's either this looks great or this is terrible. So one thing from the book is there's a, uh, a concept called uh, the weirding way, which is a essentially a, a, like a fight technique, like Kung Fu or uh, Krav Maga, but it's a fight technique with a sort of mystical application wherein uh, the user can uh, move faster and sort of uh, anticipate movements. And it's uh, something that the Ben Gazeret and a lot of members of the Adretti's household have, and it sort of gives them an advantage over Harkonnens. It just means they're basically, in, on film, that just means basically they're better at Kung Fu. <laughs> so uh, David Lynch has a quote that he said that he didn't, he, he found the idea of the weirding way unworkable on film, stating he did not want to see Kung Fu on dunes, which to me sounds like we have very different values of uh, what should be in a movie. The... I'm sure you do. <laughs> but uh, I love David Lynch, but I think that if he had hired like a Hong Kong or mainland Chinese fight choreographer and really kicked his crew's ass on training, he could have gotten really great hand-to-hand combat in the movie and, sorry, uh, more specifically sword-to-sword uh, combat in the movie. Like, I think I found it one of the most interesting concepts I've read in a sci-fi book in my life where shields have made it so regular sort of bullets in uh, in warfare don't work. So you have to do these sword fights where when you move, the shield uh, doesn't work. When you're standing in place, the shield does work. Someone can't just like run up and, and stab you. They'll, they'll be deflected off the shield and then you'll have your opening. And, it's, and the book goes into sort of details of how this would work. And it's super interesting. So he found that unworkable on film. So he has one scene with a shield, and it is the ugliest CGI effect, I think, ever on film. <laughs> These awful blocky effects. It looks terrible. So it's basically there's a scene early on in the movie where they just smash together a lot of the early stuff where Paul's getting his training. Paul's being introduced to his, his mentors, the certain elite of the Adretti's household, and they just smash it all into one really awkward, lore-heavy scene. And Paul has a, a fight with Kearney Hellick, played by Patrick Stewart. And it's this awful, awful looking thing with these blocky CGI effects. I, I know they didn't, but like, imagine they shot this movie chronologically. <laughs> I imagine Lynch being like, oh, 
So, uh... Let's not do that again. That looked terrible, or that took forever to animate, and it looked terrible. So, yeah, exactly. Let's not do that again. So he switched it to basically be gunfights. The weirding way in the movie is essentially a voice gun and it's it's super powerful it's much more powerful than regular weapons and uh he essentially removes shields from the movie entirely um yeah so why did they even i think the only reason they kept it in is because that whole opening sword fight has patrick stewart yell exposition at at paul the whole time um yeah and it needed about how their world works and who they're fighting and who the bad guys are that they're like well this never comes up again but yeah paul like never does hand-to-hand combat again for the rest of the movie until until the very end and that has nothing to do with shields and it's over pretty quickly yeah he basically beats up one more harkonnen guard and and then no, I'm he, talking about his fight with uh, Sting. yeah, and then the, and then yeah. his fight with Fade Rafa Sting, and and yeah, so he turned it into gunfights, which all right, that's that's fine if he thinks gunfights are more workable on film, but most of the gunfights in the movie are, are pretty inert. I uh, I kind of disagree with you in the sense that like riding the worm felt kind of <laughs> triumphant, uh, and the weirding way at that point I was I was over how stupid it seems conceptually and then i i kind of found that, that the scene where there's blowing up the sardaukar uh with with the the energy blasts kind of triumphant and fun and i and I, I, I thought i thought all that part was good again i just had some issues with the worm riding but yeah the sound the the yell guns was a little i mean i don't even remember what i thought about it 20 years ago but the training sequence where he's like okay try to punch this obelisk okay try to kick it now watch me yell at it and then they, they're like, that's what we'll be doing. And then the next scene is they all can do it. It's it's, it's clunky. It, it's it, very clunky. This this and, movie could be called Clunky Exposition, the movie. <laughs> and it could be. And it, and it, but pretty. Just, it's got some pretty scenes. Sort of discussing the, the lore chucking that happens at you. Um, the movie moves at this sort of insane clip. <laughs> um but when you sit down to sort of, we'll return to this at the end of the show, but when you kind of sit down and look at certain scenes, like you said earlier, nothing in the movie is just okay. Everything is either great or terrible. <laughs> and I, I think that's that really matches for set design and costume design as well. The, the, the when they're on Kaladin, it is the, they have the, they're walking through these tunnels and it's like the most over-designed, awful late 70s early 80s looking thing where there's just holes and holes and notches and corners cut and everything like none of the architecture serves any sort of practical purpose which would you know make sense for uh the alien ship and the movie alien because it's not for you know humans to understand but when it's something that like our relatable humans are supposed to live in and it looks like just dog shit it really hurts the movie see, what, is there any is there any sort of imagery that stands out for you like see at least that's, that's see that's where i kind of disagree with you so and maybe this is just like how i grew up and there's an element of nostalgia at play here um i think i talked about this a little bit on the flash gordon episode but it got cut out by some monster uh me uh, but that 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 aesthetic of I think a lot of eighties films did when trying to communicate that this this is an alien world and even though you're seeing humans they live in structures and have an aesthetic that doesn't 
that is very different from anything you're accustomed to, I think, happens in Flash Gordon, uh, never-ending story. I think it happens in this movie. It's kind of let's just make everything super weird and sometimes it feels like they're just going into other sci-fi movies set designs and costume houses and throwing shit like let's just mix it all up and do these things i think this movie for the most part has a more streamlined version of that than some other uh, 80s movies that try to show that world but even still like the the unnecessary weirdness to it i love um i love that it does feel like put together by nine different people and some stuff makes sense and some stuff doesn't. I like the feeling that it gives me that, yeah, this doesn't match with how I know basic structures or costume designs to work like those. The people from the guild at the end and their design. It's never explained. It doesn't make any sense. It's just weird, and I, I love it. And again, I think that might be a little bit of, of nostalgia talking, where when I see kind of a weird amalgamation of sci-fi designs and miniatures and costumes, it gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling, but from my childhood and the types of movies I used to watch. But either way, I think it all works really well for me. I, I don't know. Some of this might be the fact that I grew up a little bit later and I grew up sort of with like Ikea minimalism in my brain, but I found the movie incredibly over-designed and, and in a way that, yeah, it, it didn't just belie pragmatism, but it also belied any sort of aesthetic appeal for me. There's things about the early Star Wars movies where, like, I just want to step in those worlds. Like, I want to go hang out at the cantina. Like, there's a sort of appeal to the world. I found it kind of... Most of the sets in this movie uh, pretty fucking ugly. The Emperor's Chamber looks good. Uh, Getty Prime with the Harkonnens looked hideous. Um, I think the only thing in the movie that I really liked was the Fremen... Uh, chambers and the Fremen still suits in terms of design because they had a sort of they had a sort of minimalism to it where like there's this big Fremen chamber where Paul gives his speeches and I was like oh that was actually better than the image in my head because it's basically an underground chamber that's been carved to serve a specific purpose and it, and it, and it has a nice like beautiful simplicity to it yeah I, I like those chambers as a contrast to kind of the opulence and the nonsensical creation of these temples and buildings and barracks and rooms that everyone lives in like i think that was good as a contrast because they are the not simple people but they you know they're they're living in the desert they don't have they have to focus on essentials and they don't have time to engage in esoteric opulence but that wasn't like a relief from me to the the rest of the design that just was a i just think that there's a sort of niceness when practical chambers look practical i did like the king's chamber the emperor's chambers because it was it looked like a, an egyptian like uh, drawings of an Egyptian's chambers where it's just like pointlessly adorned and everything is kind of angular and has a bunch of like flourishes that you just, it, it felt like a weird Egyptian dash Versailles combo, but in space, it didn't look anything like Star Wars. It just looked like place that somebody was like, this needs to not look like anything else. And then a lot of the movie kind of looked like that over, over designed um, style. And I just, I just didn't dig it. And the costumes, I think like when there's simplest, they're the best. The still suits look pretty good. There's no real way to make the nose catch thing look good on the still suit on film. 
it's fine in the book because they set up the practical reasons for it so well. But yeah, I agree. I agree. The half snorkel gear didn't didn't work. <laughs> there's no way to make that look good no, on film. No. I'm convinced. Like you can make it super super small and it it'll, might stand out more. <laughs> just just do some shit where it's like once we inject you with our magic potion, yeah, or like pure concentrated spice, you can breathe just fine. It's funny because it's a movie of it is a movie that's so heavily compromised that the nose thing is funny because like they basically delete from the book that the Fremen have a water crisis, which means that if you're going to delete from the book that the Fremen have a water crisis, which is fine. If your movie's not about that, you don't need to have the nose part of the still suit. The nose they part got that over-explained water of life, though. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the nose part of the still suit is basically like, uh, we need water so badly that we need to catch your nose drippings. <laughs> we need to catch every last drop and have it converted back into water for you. Yeah, again, I think that speaks to my earlier point that they just had no fucking idea what they needed to communicate and what they didn't. I, I wanted David Lynch to go back through with a permanent marker and make the book look like a uh, a CIA uh, torture memo that's been redacted. Just black line. No, no, we don't need this. We don't need this. We don't need... Like, I wanted Lynch to go back through the book and just cut out everything that wouldn't look good on film and adapt it to something new. And the movie is just this creature of compromise, but it's a weird creature of compromise, so it's worth talking about. Yeah, I um, my opinion of it went up from last time. I enjoyed watching it more separated from a 13-year-old's expectation of, here's a book I like, now I want to see that movie on screen. So separating from that, I actually enjoyed it more. But again, it's a movie best enjoyed, honestly, with the with the sound off. I feel like I'm repeating myself, but all of the everything positive I have to say with this movie is ignore the plot, ignore what anyone's saying, Ignore the acting and just, you know, and just watch it while listening to, you know, a police album. I don't know. (laughs) Like, you know, it's it's and that's not how you're supposed to watch a movie. It really is interesting visually. There's a lot of cool design choices and there's some great little Lynchian moments when he does get him in there. The scene of Paul's sister getting born is one of the weirdest birthing scenes I've ever seen in a movie that's not trying to be gross or horror-y, but just here's a different way that you would visualize the birth of a baby. And I love those little moments. Um, I like the design of the grown-up Eraserhead baby. I love uh, a lot of the dream sequences or where he's or where seeing the future. I love the design when he goes into the water of life and uh, becomes super powerful. All that stuff's great, but it it basically comes at the behest of don't give a shit about the plot and try to ignore that no one seems to know how to act suddenly. Yeah. Or no one one knows how to deliver these poorly written lines. Sometimes, I mean, again, a lot of good actors in this movie, something with the dialogue and the performances didn't click. So, like I said earlier, this is a hyper uh, efficient movie to its own fault, where it tries to smash a thousand ideas into into one bucket. The movie is, I think, uh, not visually consistent for me, at least. The appeal of it is not visually consistent enough for me to recommend it that highly. Like, I can't really... I think it's an interesting movie if you've seen... And I think it's worth watching, basically, if you like the book. 
<laughs> you can see the ideas communicated super, super fast. I think that the movie should have compromised more. I think it should have been a lot less like the book. I'd love to see Lynch's three-hour cut to see if it improves this because it's kind of an awkward medium where it's screaming through the events of the book in a way that never lets any moment settle with you, which is like a big thing that I talk about on the show, especially with horror movies. This is obviously like a sci-fi movie, but like I like to sit in a tone for a bit revel in a filmmaker's vision the mood that they're trying to put off and the movie switches between moods set pieces ideas everything so so fast that i just don't have it i just keep getting dislodged from it i just keep getting disconnected from it and i didn't feel connected to the movie until like the last 30 minutes maybe um once it kind of settled down on uh plot and lore once it kind of got there, I was like, okay, we're all the pieces are in place. We're there. And, and like that stuff should have been done in the first 30 minutes. And it's lore for lore's sake, which is really frustrating. It should be – lore should push the plot forward always. See, I think you'd like a more conventional – I'm pretty convinced – I was at the time too. I never actually did watch that sci-fi. I haven't seen it. Special. Great. I, I've heard. I've heard that it's better than this movie for trying to communicate the plot of the book better, which is unsurprising because they had more time and uh, probably someone that was more concerned about getting the plot of the book down. While while it looks a lot worse, which again not surprising because it's a sci-fi miniseries uh, from 2000. I actually think that going the less conventional, I I would have liked to see Lynch take some of the visuals in the book and just kind of make a weird movie like I don't need to know I already don't know what's going on or who some of these people are so why not go full on surrealism uh, you know strange high concept and just do just do a visual pastiche where you all you need to know is there's good guys and there's bad guys and there's a bunch of futuristic world that you don't understand I think that would have been the way to go with it just because I think that the book is too dense and the stuff that's really interesting in the book doesn't translate well to trying to tell that story. So I I agree that going super conventional and cutting out a lot of that narrative would be a way to go. I also think just accepting that this you're not going to be able to communicate what's going on in this world in a couple hours. Just show me some cool shit. I can't decide if I wanted to see the version of this movie that snipped more out or if I wanted to see the version of this movie that was an extra hour long and breathed more. But like, honestly, I'm leaning towards I just wanted to see the movie with less in the script. It it didn't work for me as a movie and it didn't work for me as an adaptation. So it just didn't work for me. It's funny that you said that you'd recommend it to Dune fans. I would actually recommend it more to to David Lynch fans. I I feel like there's no way because the book is so fucking good. I feel like there's no way to read the book. And even if you and even if you go, I get it. It's a different medium, and it, I've heard from people it's not as good. I just I feel like there's no way to not be wildly disappointed as a book fan in this movie. But I feel like there's a lot you can get from it as a Lynch fan who's going, okay, this isn't pure Lynch, but this is kind of where his career could have gone if this was uh, successful. And instead it pivoted more to the Lynch movies that we all know and love and what they can get out of that of seeing kind of a false second act in Lynch's potential career path. I disagree a little bit just because I 
don't think the movie is that lynchy. Well, I don't I don't think it's that lynchy, but I think it is interesting to see what he did with a scale and trying to tell a story that he basically never did again. I mean, that is that is true to see like what the limitations of him as a filmmaker are and stuff. But I think he was more interested in plumbing the internal than the external. He found the epic within how our brains process dreams and how we communicate with one another more than he found how man can spread across the universe and how man controls man with power like i think he just he found things that he he was more interested in um yeah and he found the limits of someone driving five miles an hour across (laughs) state lines um i I love that movie i'm not trying to yeah, not trying I to, did, to, to stack too. shit on the straight story. I did enjoy watching this movie, but like, I think it would be disingenuous of us to not talk about the what kept us out of the movie and what hurt our experience in the movie and sort of its fame as some sort of forgotten Lynch masterpiece. Because I, I just don't think I don't think either of us think that that fits. No, I I enjoyed watching it. I would I would give this a positive rating. You know, there, there's movies that you give a positive rating that would also be a movie that you'd recommend to most people. This is a movie that even if I recommended, I would feel like it would come with a lot of caveats. And if someone was like, hey, should I blind buy this? I would say no, because I think watching it once every 20 years is about all you need to. Like, I enjoyed watching it again. It had been 20 years. There was a lot of stuff I'd forgotten. But I can't say it's a good movie when my recommendation is to put this on in the background and enjoy what you're seeing on screen when that's not what the movie's trying to do. Obviously, there's something there's something at the core that's wrong with the movie. Even if there is moments, a lot of moments, I think, that can be appreciated or, or visualizations that can be appreciated in a vacuum. So there's one other thing before we end this. So I was going to try to get a bunch of uh, Sting and police song titles throughout this commentary on the movie. And just to try to see how long it would take you to catch on that I was doing that. I feel like that was too difficult to also maintain a realistic dialogue with you. <laughs> so um, if it, I, I felt like it may be bad if all I was trying to do is to look for little moments to naturally insert sting titles into discussion of the movie until you got to a point, hopefully, you know, maybe, maybe halfway through that you're like, hey, are you... Are you saying sting titles when trying to talk about this movie? I'm going to give you an example. So I'm going to do a couple of those now. Uh, I wanted to say that Abraxas is covered in sand, or as they called it, fields of gold. You think you would have got that one? Sure. <laughs> Sean, Sean Young plays sort of a desert rose. I'm really glad you put these at the end. So you got them easy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the no. end of the movie, it's a brand new day for Abraxas. Every like little thing Paul does is magic. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> Patrick Stewart feels a little out of place in this movie, like an Englishman in New York. <laughs> Some of these hurt in a way that I love. <laughs> I had more, but I'll stop this while I'm way behind. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm loving it. Do you have more? I do. I do have some more. Can you give one to me? <laughs> yeah, I can. Um, I, I was going to say that the Baron is like the king of pain. Um, I see the best of it. I'm like, oh, I guess that's the name of a police song. Oh, yeah. No, I, lo- I had to look these up. I'm not that familiar with the police. And I just found some hopefully common ones that other people would know that if you're a police or a Sting fan. I knew like Brand New Day. When Paul meets Sean Young, she has him wrapped around his finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
the one I didn't know if I was going to get away with, which is Paul really questions everything he's been taught. He's thinking, I've lost my faith in you, which is kind of if I, I had trouble figuring out if I ever lose my faith in you. So I thought maybe a cheeky reference. And at the end of the movie, when he's fighting Sting, he's like, get out of here, buddy. Don't stand so close to me. <laughs> I was, my goal was to make them more and more obvious as we went along. The, so the reason I, I abandoned that plan after I had done it is because I'm like, he's going to get done with this movie and be like, did you even fucking pay attention to what we were talking about? Or are you just trying to figure out where to put it? Sting songs. <laughs> Do I edit all this out or what? Yeah, he just did. He ruined our podcast to make a really terrible joke on me. <laughs> um, so is I that, thought I'd save it? him for the end. Yeah, is it. that the bottom of the, is that the bottom of your sweet sweet barrel? I, I don't know. Did I say something about a message in a bottle? <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> you did now. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate the uh, the level of prep and love that you put into that. Yeah, to try to play a joke on you that you wouldn't get. I think. <laughs> I think that's usually called bullying. <laughs> This yeah, and we haven't met in person, so uh, this would this would be online bullying. We should remind our audience that we've never met in person before, and we've that, never uh, met in person. Week, we have we have two July. more episodes. Yeah, we, the uh, week of so, July fourth, we'll meet in uh, we'll meet in person in uh, good old Minneapolis. If we sound super weird on our Species Two episode, it means that our meeting went terribly, <laughs> and we don't like each other all that much in real life. And there's there's <laughs> might be some awkwardness uh, as we try to get back in the groove of okay, let's pretend that never happened. We're just online friends. We've never met. We find out we catfished each other. It's disappointing for everybody. But yeah, so for all the listeners, if on Species 2 you notice a demonstrably different podcast, uh, it's because we met in person. Um, which, speaking of which, we should talk about our lineup. So this is the last uh, episode for a while of just uh, single episodes. Um, and the reason that we did that is because as we, we, we had a list of like 50 movies that we wanted to cover. And we're like, well, maybe we can organize some of, some of these into theme months. And what we found was as we started coming up with a theme month ideas that movies that had never occurred to us to cover that we thought would be super interesting to talk about started coming to our mind. And so that led to us saying, well, why don't we just do theme months? So starting uh, in July, which will be um, the next episode that airs, we're doing Alien Reinvasion. And uh, Peter, what are the four movies that we're going to be covering for Alien Reinvasion? So we're going to start with, for Alien Reinvasion Month, which is Alien Sequel. So it's about aliens coming back to finish the job. First one we're going to be covering is Predator 2 with Rick Kelly, uh, Dissolver and uh, author of the website Luddite Robot. I think the only author, he's had, he's had a one or two guest posts. Definitely check out Luddite Robot. Rick's a awesome dot dot com if you go to dot gov it's a whole different thing <laughs> it's a completely different thing it's about yeah it's about yeah. the government building wood robots for china it's weird unrelated <laughs> to what we're talking about <laughs> so definitely check out rick kelly's website luddite robot it's really fantastic and then uh we're going to be recording an episode of alien resurrection the third sequel to alien which is a movie that uh, i quite love and i do not know how aaron feels about so we'll we'll find that we'll out say we'll i rewatched it today Oh, so it's, it's, it's fresh in your mind. Um, it's fresh in my mind. And that's going to be another pre-recorded episode, a little peek behind the curtain. Aaron, do you want to go through the last two movies? Yeah, then we'll be doing Species 2, the almost completely forgotten. I think the original's pretty forgotten, but I had a big soft spot for the movie. 
when it came out i thought it was kind of this fun crazy exploitative movie that sacrificed all elements of trying to do a creepy story and just went for good old-fashioned uh gore and nudity and people exploding and that kind of stuff uh but i haven't seen it in 16 years so will i find it as dumb and charming as i did when i was in high school or will i be like oh my god there's so many problems with this movie it really is a toss-up at this point but then we were going to close out Alien Reinvasion Month with Superman 2 with a friend of the show and the person who has been doing all of our artwork, including our new logo for We Love to Watch, Zach Groton. We are very happy to have him back. We're going to be talking about Superman 2. He's going to be talking about Godzilla. It's going to be a weird episode, but yeah. uh, we're very excited to have him back. And then uh, which cut of the uh, Superman 2 are we, we going to be going through? We're going to be doing the Richard Lester cut. Basically because the Richard Donner cut is, while interesting, it's not the movie that most people have seen. And it, for those of you that are aware of the similarities between that and the first movie, it basically has the same ending as Superman the movie. So I'm going to try to watch it before I haven't seen it since the DVD box set came out a long time ago. Uh, So we may have some mild discussions on the movie, but we will be talking about the theatrical Richard Lester cut. We should also say that we're going to be talking about the theatrical cut of Alien Resurrection, not the 2003 uh, spe- special edition. Yeah, that's a good uh, point to make because Junet got what he wanted with a theatrical cut. And even in the, the really terrific uh, Alien Quadrilogy, he has a, a short intro to the extended cut. And he basically, at the extended and the theatrical cut, he basically says like, the extended cut is just for fun. Uh, the theatrical cut is the director's cut. And I really, really like Alien Resurrection. Just a spoiler. So uh, do, do not watch the extended cut. It's got a bunch of garbage in it. It's right off the bat that I uh, I think is all happily cut from the, the theatrical dash director's cut. Yeah, and then August. We are not going to announce the movies that we'll be doing yet, but the month is going to be Killbillies, which is redneck horror movies. So... Uh, We already have a pretty nice lineup and a nice group of guests that will be joining us, which we'll be announcing later once we finalize a few more dates. So if you had access to our Google Docs sheet first, uh, how did you do that? Please stay out of our personal information. And two, you'd realize that we have, well, holy shit, Peter, do we have a ton of months that we are working on putting together. So uh, we'll be asking for suggestions both for what sort of theme months we're going to do and movies that will be included in them. So we're really going to be with this whole change uh, looking for uh, more participation from our listeners. And Peter, you can give some information on how they can participate so we have the podcast set up on soundcloud of course that's where we host it and send it out to stitcher tune in and itunes please rate and review on itunes and uh if we are not in your podcatcher of choice please let us know we now have a web presence we will have a bigger web presence uh starting next week but if you go to wltwpodcast.com so we love to watch podcast.com it's coming together and that's where we'll be directing you to have comments on the show critiques discussions that sort of stuff and uh yeah we love words of encouragement words of uh encouragement let's just leave it we love words of encouragement and nothing else because we're sensitive sensitive children (laughs) and once again that's wltw i wanted to do the the radio call sign version of that podcast (laughs) 
Com. And also, just as a note, I checked it today. If you search, listen to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes, we do not show up at all anymore. So we are we love to watch. We'll try to remind you of it as much as possible to the point that you uh, stop loving to listen. Um, but uh, that is where you'll find us. And thank you so much to the Dissolve Group for helping us pick the movie this week. I'm sorry for all of you that really like it and felt like we shit on it quite a bit. But, you know, we're, we're happy to provide that service to you. I don't know. At no cost. At no cost. Yes. <laughs> Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.